This is a Federal News Network podcast. The entire federal workforce has never been subject to a vaccine mandate before, and the policy is raising questions about how agencies will discipline employees who fail to comply with the new requirements. Federal contractors got a few more details about what the policy will mean for them last week. Federal News Network's Nicole Agrisco joins us now to talk about some of that latest guidance and why so many other aspects of the vaccine mandate are still up in the air. Hi, Nicole. Hey, Jared. So take us through some of these uh, new, uh, you know, at a high level, some of these new points the administration's raised uh, in, in these two pieces of guidance that we just got. So for federal contractors, I think the big news there is they have their own deadline. So for federal employees, they have until November 22nd to be fully vaccinated or to sort out the reasonable accommodation process. And for federal contractors, they have until until December 8th to be fully vaccinated. And some recent guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force details exactly how that's going to work. And it will be, you know, a subsequent process with the FAR Council, with agency contracting officers that will put these safety requirements into the contracts themselves, essentially. But a couple other details for contractors, you know, the vaccine mandate applies to pretty much anyone who does business with the federal government, although there are some exceptions. And for those contractor companies that are covered under this vaccine mandate, it applies to all of their workers, regardless of whether or not they're physically working on a specific contract at the time. And it also applies to anybody working from home. So if you are working on a government contract and you're able to work from home, you have to be vaccinated as well. Those are some of the the top level highlights there for contractors. Okay, but let's go back to federal employees for a minute. That the administration has said that if you don't get vaccinated under this mandate, you will be subject to discipline. First question any federal employee is going to have is, what does that mean? How uniform are these disciplinary measures going to be across the federal government? Do we know? So that is the big question that I think we're still trying to find out, and that maybe even agencies are still trying to sort out for themselves. So. We know under the administration's current guidance, employees have to be fully vaccinated by November 22nd. Those who are not complying with that vaccine mandate at that time, agencies should apparently pursue disciplinary action against them. Those actions could include removal from federal service. And that's about all that's out there, at least from the Biden administration, on the disciplinary piece. And, you know, federal attorneys that I've talked to, federal employment attorneys that I've spoken with, they say, they say that's pretty broad. And, you know, I think the guidance that we've gotten from the administration as to the disciplinary process itself, you know, they're saying, well, just use the standard disciplinary procedures that you would for any other situation. And that's where I think things could get tricky. So in most federal disciplinary cases, it's the supervisor who is proposing a potential adverse action could be a suspension, could be a demotion or removal. And they're supposed to give the employee a chance to respond. And then a deciding official, that's usually another supervisor or manager, will issue a final decision with the penalty. So in choosing how to discipline an employee for most other offenses in the federal workforce, supervisors usually consider a variety of circumstances. And these are known as the Douglas factors. And that can include anything from the nature and seriousness of the offense, and that's in relation to the employee's job and duties, 
as well as maybe any past disciplinary problems they've had, their work record, their performance, how long they've been on the job. So it's a real variety of different factors here. And that's where federal employment attorneys that I've talked to say could get a little tricky with this vaccine mandate that applies to everyone. Deb Hopkins is an employment attorney and the president of the Federal Employment Law Training Group. She trains agencies on these kinds of situations, and she perceives some inconsistencies here. Potentially inconsistency could raise concerns among employees, but on the agency side, they have a pretty good argument when applying the Douglas factors, especially the nature and seriousness of the offense. A frontline employee who refuses to be vaccinated or who works with the public regularly, arguably could put more people in potential harm uh, than a teleworker who doesn't interact at all with any members of the public or coworkers. That's Deb Hopkins. She's an employment attorney and president of the Federal Employment Law Training Group. And just to connect a couple more threads there from what she was saying. So if you're a teleworking employee and you refuse to get vaccinated, Considering the Douglas factors, considering some of those circumstances around you and your job, your penalty for not getting vaccinated could be slightly less severe than somebody who, say, you know, works in an office with lots of other people and members of the public. And that's the concern that some that some federal employee groups have as well. You know, I spoke with Chad Hooper. He's the executive director of the Professional Managers Association. They represent IRS supervisors. And he says, you know, they're taught to issue discipline. It's commensurate with the infraction, but the infraction can mean different things to different workplaces. So what happens if, for example, a unvaccinated employee doesn't want to get vaccinated, refuses to comply, works in an office of, let's say, five people? What's the disciplinary action for them as opposed to, say, the exact same type of employee doesn't want to get vaccinated, but they work in an office with thousands of people? Are the penalties and disciplinary actions different for those people? And these are the kinds of questions that uh, attorneys, employment groups are trying to figure out right now. And so then I guess the the last question really is, are agencies ready to, to deal with all of this? So the attorneys that I spoke with, they say, on one hand, yes. I mean, they know what the federal disciplinary process is. Agencies do. Supervisors are supposed to. What's maybe trickier is handling the reasonable accommodation process. And that's a specific piece that we haven't gotten a lot of guidance on, at least at this point. There's also so many people within agencies that can work on those requests at this point. You know, the attorneys I talked to, they believe agencies might get inundated with some of these requests because, again, the administration has said that if you have a medical disability potentially as as an, you know the reason why you're not getting vaccinated or a religious objection you might be subject or you might be able to get a reasonable accommodation most agencies already have offices that handle disability requests so that's you know separate but it's a different story for religious accommodations often supervisors handle those and i think the worry is that they're not really equipped to answer these kinds of questions that employees are going to have about this here's hopkins again a supervisor doesn't necessarily need legal advice if an employee requests to leave work early so they can be home by sundown. That's a pretty straightforward request. But a request for an exemption because of uh, sincerely held religious belief is something that potentially could be more complicated. And I think supervisors and managers would appreciate people who are trained in 
the area of religious exemption requests. That's Deb Hopkins, an employment attorney again. And Jared, in its last round of guidance, at least for federal employees anyway, the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force says that it will put out more uh, guidance, more details on how you can uh, make exceptions to the vaccine mandate and how agencies should grant reasonable accommodations. And, and I guess to complicate this further, agencies not only don't have much experience or as much experience on the religious accommodations front as they might on disabilities, no one's ever dealt with applying religious accommodations to vaccines specifically, right? No. And that's why the employee groups and the federal employment attorneys that I've talked to say that this is so dicey is, again, you know, these are questions that agencies haven't dealt with before. And I think the the sort of concern is applying a very standard disciplinary process, reasonable accommodation process to something they've never handled before. And that's where the questions are coming into play and the, you know, sort of unknown factor comes into play. All right. Federal News Network's Nicole Agrisco. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. And you can find more on these vaccine issues at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.